Why is it that over 70% of property investors stop at one property? Could it be that dealing with tenants is not as simple as we think it should be? Or perhaps it's dealing with property managers that's the problem. Or maybe it's only after settlement that the investors realise they missed out on some critical due diligence. So it's an interesting sort of conversation where you know, people have got, say, poor units. They, they hold on because there's this belief I can't lose money or prices are going to rise. But ultimately, they're just wasting years and years of their life and what they could be doing with that borrowing capacity. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're talking with Lauren Robinson, Director of Rental Results in Brisbane. Lauren originally came to property management from a marketing background and has really looked into what makes a property rent easily. She's authored a book called Rented, which shows new and not so new investors how to develop an investor mindset, secure the most suitable tenants, create property appeal, manage legal responsibilities, very important, and rent out property in the quickest possible time frame. And we're also interested in her take on how marketing for rental property is changing and the increased usage of technology in the space. So thanks for joining us today, Lauren. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Veronica and Chris. Thank you, Lauren. I guess the first thing I'd probably be keen to understand is what are some of the typical reasons you find that a lot of new landlords really fail when they come to renting out their property? Yeah, I think it's just having a really good understanding of the demographic of tenants that are likely to rent their property. And then perhaps when they're looking at their investment property, they maybe don't really understand what that market is looking for. And I also think sometimes where owners go wrong is that they don't understand the legislation. So perhaps they think that, you know, they can they can rent out a property where it may be not legal height but advertise it that way or, um, you know, maybe they just don't understand that the entire legislation surrounding the Residential Tenancy Act. I'm sure a lot of people do not understand the legislation and obviously it differs state by state as well. Mm. And I would imagine you being based in Brisbane, dealing with a lot of landlords that don't even reside in Queensland. Would that is that something that, mm. you know, the state differences in states comes into play? Oh, definitely, yes. And, I mean, yeah, like I'm very familiar with the Queensland legislation and often get phone calls from owners who have investment properties in New South Wales, Western Australia, and it very much differs state by state. So I think, you know, really um, having someone in each state where you have a property is really important that they understand that specific legislation. I think Veronica's kind of pointing out there a really good point where uh, Brisbane and southeast Queensland and just Queensland, a lot of people in Melbourne and Sydney have got investment properties in mm-hmm. um, and a lot of them are not really too, haven't really gone in there with, you know, open minds, I guess. They've sort of just basically read a magazine or been sold by a property spruker, a new apartment or something like that or a duplex. What are some of the areas in Brisbane where you find 
property is really hard um, to rent where there's lots of other in re- rentals? I think that really, I mean, every when you look at vacancy rates in particular, so we're seeing in, in, it's, it fluctuates and there's specific areas right now in Brisbane where we're seeing vacancy rates that are a lot higher than they normally would. And one example of that is St Lucia. So that's where the University of Queensland is. In particular, that area has been really affected due to COVID. So we've not seen the international students arriving. So vacancy rates in that particular suburb are at 10%. So oversupply sits at around 3%. So we, we haven't really seen that in St. Lucia before. Um, I myself have owned an investment property there. I've had that for 12 years and I've always had it rented on a single day's vacancy. Whereas this year, I've had vacancy and I've had to reduce the rent. So I think... You know, it really depends on the areas. I think as you go further out of the CBD, what we're seeing is that there's a lot of stock. So the older properties, maybe 15 to 20 k's out of the city, they're, they're the ones who, um, you know, people are looking for newest, newer properties and they tend to, to drop or you might see some vacancy there. So a lot of the houses that are, you know, 30, 40 years old, maybe around the five, $600,000 mark um, or maybe even cheaper, a lot of those are struggling to find rentals because they're not renovated. That's sort of, yeah, so, they're not sort of. Yeah, proximity. So if you're looking, if you have a house that, um, you know, is, is older style but close to the city, they're still achieving really good rents and there's still demand. Yeah. Whereas we're seeing, yeah. you know, further out, um, you know, people are able to move closer in when, when, the, um, when there's more availability. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, there is a, uh, a number of sort of, people out there in the property world that sort of push that middle and outer ring Brisbane and, um, you know, buy land and buy houses at the three four $400,000 mark. But what you're saying is that a lot of the renters who would rent that would rather go a bit closer to the city and rent something a bit newer. Um, and so there's kind of like a growing problem where there's not much strong demand for those sort of older houses on bigger blocks. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Veronica and I were up in Brisbane maybe 18 months ago, I think it was, Veronica. Um, Time flies. Something around. <laughs> yep. Um, I've lost track of last time I was over, even on a plane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it was really interesting. We, we saw um, massive billboards sort of out there, sort of um, free rent, free month rent, um, oh, you know, people trying to rent their high-rise apartments. Three months free and an iPad. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> and I think, you know, investors, like as an investor, you need to be really careful of these sort of, um, I guess, schemes to, to attract you into buying in that particular particular area. So, and if you, yeah, they're having to throw in an iPad and three months free rent, then that really affects your annual return. But the problem is in, in Brisbane, you know, you've got loads of stories about the southeast. Queensland boom and what is a boom? Is it a development boom or is it actually a property boom? And that's been marketed heavily to people who reside in southern states, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, where property is expensive. And so Brisbane, by comparison, looks cheap and they're not realising that there's, you know, there's more to it. But they've also got, you know, well-publicised oversupply of apartments in Brisbane in West End and New Farm, places like that. Great, really great inner city areas, you know, and yet loads and loads and loads of apartments and and not finished being constructed either. And, in fact, I think those billboards going back in memory (laughs) with the three months free rent and the uh, iPad were for those type of properties. They're not – and they're not far out, you know. So, Mm. you know, from a property management point of view, I mean, these – 
people buy them. They think that they're great investments. They've probably got a rental guarantee for a period of time, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're brand new for a while, so they'll they'll attract or they'll appeal to people who don't want to go for something a little bit older, but then they'll wear and tear and they mm-hmm. won't look brand new forever. As a property manager, you know, somebody's already bought it. They've already made the mistake. How can you help them, you know, rent that? I mean, how do you make that stand out? Can you make that stand out? Yeah, and I think that you definitely can. And I think we manage quite a lot of properties in those high-rise complexes within, you know, 5 to 10K the CBD where there is a lot of stock that is similar that's available. So I think when it comes to marketing the property online, it's really important to make sure that your property is sitting at the top of the list, professional photography, utilising 2D, 3D floor plans, 360-degree virtual tours, perhaps it's Facebook marketing. So you you want to get as many eyes as possible onto that particular investment property. And then once they're in the building, it's getting them to choose your property as opposed to, you know, maybe, you know, 40 others in that complex that are for rent. So a couple of the things that an owner can do is, um, and even, you know, virtual furnishings in the, in the online advertising. But once they're there, it's making sure that that property stands out. So can you add a storage cage? So storage is something that's really difficult in units and often lacking. Can you put something above the car space to make sure that that's, that's different? Can you do anything on the balcony? So can you add something on there that's body corporate approved, obviously? Can you install security screens? What are the things that you can do to that particular property that might make it more appealing? So, but I think one of the things would be to get the most attention on the on the listing in the first place and making sure it presents at its best online. And then once they're in, how can you make your built or your particular unit more appealing? So one example I've seen in, in particular is a unit which had two bedrooms plus a study and that owner actually put a built-in desk in it to make it more um like more as a study as a post. It definitely wasn't suitable for a bedroom. There was no windows in it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, just trying to make it more appealing. So it's it sounds a bit like polishing a turd into a strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. also these things, if other owners in the building sort of clue to it, it they, they're not permanent yeah. uh, improvements, you know what I mean? These yes. are additional, like once you've bought a lemon, it's like, oh my God, I have to try to add some sugar to this thing to make it taste a bit better. Um, And I'm going to do that. And I'm hoping that I'll get a tenant in there until the other, before the other owners realize they can put a bit of sugar on their lemon too. You know, it's, it's, so you're, you're basically stuck aren't you? Well, you don't want to be differentiating your property purely based on price. That just drives the entire building down. So I think it's trying to look for things that would be as appealing as possible to that demographic. And, you know, maybe it is throwing in an iPad, but, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to go. But but that's what you see, you know, three months free plus an iPad, that sort of stuff, as opposed to drop, just dropping and dropping and dropping the rent. So I'm interested to sort of understand the mindset of sort of your uh, vendors, or I mean, your property owners, I guess, um, and they're, you know, I guess they must have a bit of frustration if they say, for example, bought a new unit and it's, you know, potentially down in value. Maybe they've lost 10% from what they paid, maybe 450 it's worth 400 or, you know, we've seen plenty of these over the years, mm-hmm. maybe at 500 now it's worth 420 Um, What, you know, and then they're having problems renting it. So this, this is a stressful experience. What, when they sort of come to you, what's sort of their longer term strategy to get out of these? Are they saying, well, as soon as I don't lose any money, um, I'm going to sell um, 
or uh, some just taking it on the chin and selling them as a big loss? I mean, what sort of some of the stories you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, we see this uh, all the time where people have bought off the plan or they might have bought, um, you know, interstate and not, no, never have even been to Brisbane to see the property. And we've seen, you know, new developments go up in front and they've lost their views. Um, so I've had, you know, one particular owner that I can think of bought off the plan, has never been to Brisbane um, in South Bank and another building went up right in front of it, immediately he lost his view. And the property yeah. was valued at, you know, $150,000 less. So, mm. you know, it's a long-term game. You don't want to be selling that property whilst the other property is being developed right in front of it. So no one's going to want to buy or live in a property um, paying top dollar when there's construction going on right in front of you. So I think mm. it's really knowing when's the peaks in the market, understanding that, and also making sure that you um, are, are selling at the right time. So that owner in particular was able to hold on and it's it's in a good location it rents reasonably well so it's not it, there's never any vacancy there and it's not actually costing him a whole lot to keep so he's holding that for now and then you know waiting until there's supply in Brisbane there's less stock available so um, but I think you know we I, I spoke to another investor yesterday who's held the properties for six years and he's looking at like ideally retiring in the next three years and you know I guess at the moment he hasn't seen much gains in, in a couple of his investment properties so I guess when you look at you know rental returns versus capital growth you know a lot of people do buy units and apartments for the higher rental yields um, expecting them to return fairly quickly and yeah, I guess that's sort of what we've seen in the last few years in Brisbane. We have had an oversupply of apartments, as has Perth and other locations. So, I mean, there's probably a lot to chat about sort of the mistakes of investors yes. and believing that yield, high yield is going to get them actually a net return and the real truth around depreciation, et cetera. I guess what I'm interested in sort of exploring is you know, so let's say they're holding on so they can get a better price. Mm -hmm. But as soon as, you know, let's say apartments in Brisbane recover because there's low listings, maybe underbuilding for five or 10 years mm -hmm. um, and house prices go expensive, which is happening now, yeah. um, then there'll be potentially a bit of demand pushing to apartments. But as soon as um, apartments rise a little bit, potentially back to sort of what people have paid, you're going to start seeing this flood of people wanting to get out because they've gone through a very you know, lengthy period of stress where yeah. there's been negative equity, they want to get rid of it, um, et cetera. So do you think that a lot of your sort of people with these type of properties, as soon as prices rise a little bit, they're going to want to sell because it's been quite a painful experience? I think, I mean, I guess, you know, in terms of whether they're going to want to sell or not, it also depends on what stage they're at. So we, we work with quite a lot of clients that are getting to that stage where they're at retirement level and they're wanting to start, they're starting to think about okay well will we sell that investment and um, how long do we want to keep these assets for so I think that really depends on where they're at in their life also mm. um you know whether like I, you know I'm a firm believer in you buy an asset and you hold it as long as possible so and I think you know we will see eventually these increases in the market in, in units and apartments and we're already seeing rents go up in Brisbane in apartments so they're certainly not going down um so yeah the problem with new apartments though, as soon as price rises happen um what that does is allow developers to make more money yes and so when developers can make more money that means they can crystallize 
the the land they already own. Yeah. You know, they knock down that shop and they build. So as soon as prices will rise, yeah. you'll get more uh, more stock, and so then that'll then just taper off demand, and then a lot of the buyers will buy the new stuff, not the old stuff, and you'll get this flatlining, continual flatlining of prices. Hence, like in Melbourne, yes. etc. So the only way you're going to get increases in prices long term is a, a significant undersupply and a growing demand, mm. and these assets unfortunately don't tick the growing demand um, and they're always going to have increases in supply. So it's just an interesting sort of conversation where you know, people have got, say, poor units. They, they hold on because there's this belief I can't lose money mm. or prices are going to rise. But ultimately they're just wasting years and years of their life and what they could be doing with that borrowing capacity. Yeah. Yeah, opportunity costs. And it's dangerous because we, we've discussed, you know, uh, behavioural biases in many, many episodes. And if we go back to the ones we've talked about, um, disposition effect, you know, that that – and, and also the the loss aversion, the pain of losing, but also the idea that we try to avoid selling those crappy assets and crystallizing those losses because we feel better if we sell good assets, or we feel better if we just dig our mm. head in the sand and hope That's that true. hope that we wait, we wait, we wait until things go become good. But I'm interested too. I mean, you know, once people have made that decision you know, they've actually made, they're committed to it. They've bought the property and they've got to make it stand out. So it's interesting what you're saying there, Lauren, about those sort of those additional things that people can do in a cookie cutter unit to try to make it stand out. But Mm -hmm. I guess that's quite painful too to owners to say, well, you know, if you want to rent your property when there's 40 others in the building or, or around that are very similar, you have to spend more money on it. That must be a hard conversation for a property manager to have with a landlord, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it all comes back to well, how much is you know adding a storage cage, or how much is how much are these additional expenses going to cost versus you know how many weeks vacancy? So I think you know if it's a five hundred dollar a week unit and it might cost you know a thousand or twelve hundred dollars to put a storage cage in, you know how many weeks will that like what will that equate mm. to really? So I think it's working out well. What's the annual return? I mean, we've definitely seen owners who put storage cages in and, you know, theirs might be the only one in the building at the time. Um, but, you know, of I guess an example, like at the moment what we're seeing is that um, we've got a rental of over 600 properties and at the moment we don't have any vacancy. So it is quite a strong market right this minute. Um, but I think, yeah, it's making sure that they do really stand out. We've had properties where we've taken it over from another agent. It's been vacant in a building for over three weeks and we've been able to rent it in two days. And it really does come back to making sure that that property is marketed properly online. So it was changing how it was advertised and, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's got tenants in there. So um, I think people maybe discount the fact that, good marketing online really does play an effect in getting quality tenants quickly. Have you got much experience sort of with clients who have bought, say, new house and land packages um, or new duplexes? I know these are very common, Um, you know, Ipswich, sort of Logan area, Red Bank Plains, um, Springfield, these sort of pockets um, where they've sort of been sold on the double income but then they go red, so they have always. Have you, what happens there? Yeah, I mean, per, like our office personally, we do not go to that area, but I certainly know people yeah. who bought properties in those areas. And you know, what's happening is that they're they're promised a dual income, they're promised you know quite high returns, and they're just not seeing those. So um, you know, if they if people have an opportunity in those areas to 
not live, you know, side by side in a duplex and, you know, pretty much pay, you know, maybe $10, $15 more, so a minimal amount more to have, you know, a house with a yard, um, they're actually choosing yep. that. So, yeah, I yeah, guess it it's really making sure that you're, you're making those careful decisions, which is why, you know, buyer's agents are so important, especially if you're not living in that area and don't know the market or the demand or even the demographics of people who are likely to rent that property and what they're actually looking for. And that's a good point two points there you, you've raised. One is the mm. buyer's agent. Unfortunately, a lot of buyer's agents um, have been recommending that crap mm. and and typically they are not local. So that goes into the second yeah. part of what you've said there, which is about knowing the demographics. So a lot of out of town, I know a lot of Sydney-based and Melbourne-based buyer's agents have been buying a lot of that crap mm. for their clients. Um, but the locals do understand the demographic and so, you know, they will – hopefully be able to explain why that is what we call investor stock, not investor grade. But you talked about, you know, we talked about vacancy rates earlier as well. And you said in your business, you got zero vacancy at the moment, which mm. is, you know, well done. Is that, is that because the market in your area and in, in sort of obviously in inner Brisbane is uh, stronger? And when you also talk about St. Lucia, is that how you say it, um, yeah. areas near the university where the vacancy rate is up 10%. How does vacancy rates translate low or high? How do they translate into actually rental income? Yeah. Because um, what's the impact on rents, for instance, of having a 10% vacancy rate? Yes, exactly. So when we're looking at vacancy rate, it's really driven by supply and demand. And when we're looking at, you know, vacancy rates for the entire Brisbane, you might think, okay, that looks really positive. I'm going to invest in that area. But it's not, it's every suburb's different, every, um, and there's different driving factors in each suburb as well. So, you know, it might be that houses are really popular in a particular area or apartment living is more popular in certain spots. So like New Farm, um, Tenerife, there is there is an oversupply of apartments, but majority of people in that area tend to want riverfront water, yeah. um, you know, river views, and they want to live in apartments. So there might be downsizes. Um, or, you know, there might be areas that are more like the demographics, definitely families, and they want, you know, a fully fenced yard because they've got pets and children. So mm. I think it's really important to understand each particular suburb. When we talk about vacancy rates it's, it's also really important to understand well what's the supply and demand because that's going to be driving you know how that's that um that level of vacancy you just mentioned pets and and i know in my properties that i own particularly when i've had houses before i've renovated them mm-hmm. um that i've known that by making them you know advertising that you can have tenants can have pets you know I know that that has definitely helped me rent these properties out at times you know even when vacancy rates are rising and I know people that have dogs for instance particularly dogs you know cats may be less of an issue trying to get property to rent is quite difficult and Mm -hmm. I know that um, certainly not all apartments allow pets either you've got the actual building problem building um, deciding whether the pets will be allowed and what the terms are and conditions are around that so what are some of the pros and cons of allowing pets in your rental property yeah I mean I'm a pet owner myself Um, we have a dog and I think you know there's definitely good pet owners and not so good pet owners, like not such such good um, owners. So I think it's really understanding, well, what type of pet is that and whether it's actually going to be suitable for living in that particular property. So, 
Um, and yeah, like you were saying, with body corporates, there are often restrictions around sizes and the types of pets and, you know, whether they're barking or not. Um, and I think it's, it's important to be aware of those, um, of those body corporate bylaws. Um, and obviously the body corporate will have a decision in that as well as the owner of the investment. The pros, I guess, for allowing pets in a rental property come back to you will have a larger pool of tenants and often families will have a pet. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that if your property lends itself to, like if, for example, it does have a fully fenced yard, if it is a house, then often people will be seeking you know, a property that's pet friendly. So it, it is definitely something to consider. When I guess the negative, so you're looking at more often more wear and tear on the property. Um, it can, you know, they can cause damage to the property. So whether it's scratching fly screens or, you know, so it is important to be aware of, you know, possible damage. Majority of landlord insurance policies will cover pet damage these days. So mm. I guess it's important to look into your landlord insurance policy, see what you're actually covered for. You can ask for an additional bond in Queensland if it's over 700 a week. So that may be something if you've got an executive property and your property is renting for over 700 a week, maybe to put yourself your mind at ease that you might ask for an additional bond if they have a pet. Um, so it just it really comes back to you know how comfortable are you, but I mean, these days, you know, tenants have to submit pet applications. That's, you know, sometimes there are, um, there are requirements from body corporates for um, the vet to write a letter explaining sort of the type of pet, you know, the different breeds, so they might be you know, less likely to drop fur. Um, and often pets have references themselves. So it is really yeah. important <laughs> to check out um, that type of pet. Yeah. <laughs> I do, I do think, think it's funny that pets have got their own references. They've got their own little uh, yes. CV there. My cat had a reference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Interesting thing, I think, in Brisbane, and uh, it's happening uh, lots of places, not just Melbourne, Sydney, but Brisbane house prices are, are starting to go uh, really strong and go quite nuts. And, and we've had clients been buying um, older Queenslanders. Some have been maybe renovated 10, 15 years ago, or some are, you know, quite a bit older, um, but maybe they're still in a decent condition. Um, but maybe it's got an old kitchen, maybe it's got old bathrooms, um, and maybe it's only some of them have got quite weird layouts, so maybe it's only a two-bed. Um, etc and they've always usually bought kind of in the around the river right so maybe Gracefield, Chame, mm-hmm. uh, Chelmar, sort of Tuong, uh, Paddington, Barden, Balmoral, uh, Wollongabba, these sort of areas. Mm-hmm. Um, how are those sort of you know older Queenslanders on decent sized blocks that can be renovated how, even if they're not renovated how are they renting you know is there a real strong demand for those type of older houses that still present, you know, reasonably okay. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the stock that we see, you know, people offering, offering higher rents. Um, we have, you know, lineups of people looking. We've got um, weekly databases of tenants looking for properties like that. So they're the types of properties, and I guess we've, we find that there's there's not as many of them. So um, mm. what we're seeing is that, you know, they, they appeal to couples, to professional couples, they appeal to families, they appeal to downsizers who, you know, want to live 
that lifestyle location, but they still want yeah. a house with a bit of room. So, um, yeah, definitely there. That's that's great stock. Because you can't hold an auction for rental for rent in Queensland, can you? No, you have to advertise a property with a set amount. But but that doesn't stop a tenant or prospective tenant to offering more. It's just that you can't call for them to offer more. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly right. So we have, you know, for example, yesterday we had someone offer $15 more a week because they, they came along to the inspection and they saw, you know, there was 12 people there, so, um, you know, spread over an hour. So, you know, they, they knew that there was a high demand for that property. Um, so then they decided, okay, well, we're going to – and they actually rang the office to say, what's the best way I can get this property? And we said, well, put forward your best offer, whether that's in terms of price, um, terms. So it may even be someone just offering, you know, a, a two-year lease. Um, that could be appealing to certain owners or paying, you know, one month's rent in advance. So we're seeing a lot of that happening for properties where they come to an inspection and there's quite a lot of people or activity there. <laughs> Now, I know that in your business you like to use and adopt new technology mm-hmm. and I know that in the prop tech side of things there's there's a lot in that space, particularly with helping property mm. managers um, be more efficient and, and I would imagine there's a knock-on effect to their tenants and to their landlords as well. What are you seeing? I guess what are you actually using? What are you adopting? What are you testing? What are you seeing in that space? Um, I guess we're seeing a lot of like artificial intelligence being brought into the property management industry. So whether that's when it comes to lodging um, maintenance for tenants, so that's, you know, it's all um, like artificial intelligence now that's sort of driving that. Um, I guess when it comes to applying for properties, you know, it's always online application forms, it's booking online inspections, it's tenants being notified automatically the properties just come onto the market. Um, so a lot, um, which which is great for our industry because it's allowing the property managers to pick up the phone, have those relationships with the clients and the tenants and be able to focus more on that customer service side of things as opposed to being mm. bogged down in the day-to-day processes, which, you know, a lot of it is repetitive tasks that can be automated. I mean, COVID was a big year. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, a lot of people around the world, Aussies living in Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, UK, US, um, you know, have come to us and said, look, we're, we're moving home, uh, we're changing our sort of, we're bringing forward, we're going to stay for five years, but you know what, Let's, we're just going to come home early. How Have you sort of seen that play out in Brisbane, you know, sort of similarly, you know, as Sydney house prices rise and Melbourne rise and the, you know, work from home movement mm-hmm. um, has allowed people to consider, you know, leaving these capital cities, Brisbane's usually a, a pretty good option for them. Mm-hmm. Um how are you seeing the Port of Experts moving back and say Sydney side or Melbourne side is moving to Brisbane? How are they affecting not only the rental market, but you know, a lot of them are they buying straight away or are they sort of checking out suburbs for a year before they buy? Like what yeah. are you seeing? Every day of the week we're speaking to people interstate or overseas that are moving to Brisbane. So we're often doing Zoom inspections, virtual tours, video walkthroughs. So a lot of that's happening at the moment um, for people that, you know, maybe in Melbourne or Sydney in particular, in particular, and then they're relocating to Brisbane. So, um, and what we are seeing with those people who are moving to Brisbane is that they're often offering higher rents or they might be offering, yeah. you know, longer term leases or, you know, because I guess comparatively, obviously, to Brisbane to Sydney or Brisbane to Melbourne, the rents are a lot more affordable than yeah. Brisbane. And are they really wanting these sort of inner ring premium suburbs mm-hmm. that, you know, they can get the sort of Brisbane lifestyle 
hence why they're moving to Brisbane or coming back from overseas where they've gone for lifestyle maybe? Oh, definitely, yeah. So we're seeing, you know, obviously new farms really popular. We're seeing we've had a house in St Lucia where a couple moved from Perth. So, um, yeah. yeah, so a lot of that's happening. You know, they want to be close. If it's a family, they're typically looking for schools that are, you know, quality schools. Mm. And, um, yeah, so that's definitely happening every day at the moment. Now, we talked a little earlier, we touched on it and that sort of legal side of property management and landlord responsibilities. Where, and, and look, some of these are universal across the country, some obviously would be specific to legislation in Queensland, but what are some of the landlord responsibilities that they're probably not even aware that they yeah. have that responsibility? I mean, there's definitely a couple that, um, you know, they need to be aware of, which are, you know, obviously there's smoke alarm legislation, which is coming out in 2022. So where all property, rent properties have to have interconnected um, photoelectric smoke alarms. So that's a legislation which, you know, owners need to be budgeting for this year or, or actually doing the work this year. Um, we're also, you know, pool fencing compliance. So, you know, those pool fencing compliance certificates expire. It's also um, around blind cords, so that's another. There's legislation around that and requirements to have you know warning labels on blind cords and making sure that they're actually um, there's hooks on walls to and then a certain height above the floor. Um, so yeah, and it's also making sure that um, you know your property is you know um, good and fit to live in state. So you know often we may go to a property and um, you know if we haven't. And if it's a new property to us, it might be that the handrail is shaky or, you know, little things that, you know, really do put the landlord at risk, um, uneven pavers. <clears throat> so there are definitely types of things that, you know, as a landlord you have a responsibility to make sure that that property is, is in, good, in a good order. And what are the risks to the landlord if they don't address these things? I mean, what's yes. the recourse? Yeah, so there's there's a number of recourses and, you know, it's really making sure that they're aware of what potentially could happen. So obviously making sure you've got your insurance in place, but, you know, if someone injures themselves, then, you know, they could be sued. Um, you know, there's definitely having an investment, there are risks involved and you've got obligations. So, you know, it could end up at QCAT um, or the tribunal and, yeah, they could have, you know, compensation or damages owing to the tenant for, for not um, for making make, not making sure that the property was suitable. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, you know, that you can't insure your way out of your obligations um, and perhaps some people think they can, but there's also, you know, a bit of an uproar. Some landlords think that it's unfair, that tenants get too many rights and all that sort of thing. What's your view in terms of the legislation in Queensland at the moment? You know, do you think that it's actually leaning one way or the other? Do you think more can be done to actually increase landlords' responsibilities or, or it's the other way around? I mean, I do think it's I think it's reasonably fair and there's been the introduction of a lot of new legislation that's come in to play to make sure that, you know, it, it is fair. So during COVID, mm. obviously, new legislation was introduced around, you know, tenants who have been affected. I actually think that that was all very fair and we're very lucky here that the Real Estate Institute of Queensland is you know, obviously um, one of our governing bodies and they're really involved in making sure that that legislation is fair. So... But there was a big uproar there because yes. the first lot of legislation came through that was that was unfair or mm-hmm. deemed to be unfair, and there was a there was an uproar, and they yes. changed it. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, like obviously that was with the previous housing minister, and um, yeah, it, it definitely 
I guess some of the things that were going to be introduced and there was a lot of industry backlash and a lot of investors got involved to um, to make sure that that legislation did not get through, which would not have been fair to landlords, um, I don't believe, or, um, or property investors. I think, you know, that was definitely tenant biased. Um, and I think what was introduced in the end was much more, much, much fairer. So have you seen... Um- over the last year as well, the, I was talking about a lot of people coming into Brisbane, you know, overseas, you know, people from interstate. But in terms of, say, like the inner ring sort of housing market where you've got, you know, maybe it's young families or, um, and they've got a house, but they, you know, had to commute to the city sort of four or five days. And now they're saying, well, you know what, I'd much prefer to live on the sunny coast, um, you know, or down towards parts of the Gold Coast or, you know, even a bit further. Have you sort of seen some sort of new properties where, you know, ultimately they would have just stayed in Brisbane forever if COVID didn't happen. But now they're saying, actually, you know what, I'll keep my house in Brisbane, I'll rent it out and I'll move to these sort of more beach locations. Yeah, yeah, we are definitely seeing that. And I think, you know, the, the markets in areas like Noosa and areas of the Gold Coast, the vacancy rates are extremely low at the moment and it's very difficult to get a property there. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess people are more... Um, I guess thinking about where they'd like to live and what lifestyle they'd like to live and um, as opposed to, okay, well, we need to be close, have a close proximity to work. So that is definitely happening. We are also seeing a lot of people relocate to Brisbane. So yep. I mean, obviously yeah, Brisbane encounter. has got a lot of draw cards here too and, and we've also got a lot of infrastructure occurring in Brisbane. So, um, yeah, so it definitely people are considering where they want to live. Yeah, it's interesting the, you know, because I think one we can talk about all the more people moving there, but there is a be interesting to see over the next couple of years with return to work, how many people actually still decide to leave Brisbane and maybe live, a, you know, in Noosa or mm-hmm. the Gold Coast, et cetera. In terms of the middle ring, I know like Mount Gravatt, Gravatt's sort of pretty nice place to live and, um, you know, down towards sort of the beach, there's a couple of beach like um so what are the main beach, red cliffs? Yeah. What, what are some of the outer sort of areas where they're really super desirable um, rather than, say, living in the inner ring? Yeah, so like Manly is quite a, a sought-after location. So obviously that, that offers its own little yep. lifestyle down there with the, you know, the sailing and um, that river um, so, yeah, that river life. So it really, um, that's one of the areas. Sandgate's another area which is quite sought-after. Um, and a lot of people do day trips there, Redcliffe's another area. So, yep. you know, if they don't have to make that commute into the city, all of these areas are quite desirable too. So they offer that like, um, little community which, which is very appealing to people. Mm. Yep. And is it the main transport train? In Brisbane. That, yeah. Uh, it, to, those, yes. to those outer areas. I mean, is there a, a train link? Yeah, there's train and bus. So, um, yeah, I think, um, it, I guess that's the other thing. A lot of people aren't actually having to come into the city anymore for work. So, you know, if you, if you are able to work from home, then, yeah, it's definitely a draw card to be able to live wherever you like these days. I always thought it was quite odd that Brisbane is, you know, so inland, <laughs> given yes. how hot it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know, so, we've got South Bank, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't count. No. Um, Lauren, do you have a property Dumbo for us? You've probably got a few, I would imagine. I do, I do. So um, I guess one of the ones that, you know, probably 
I always think about is we had a tenant who um, swore that they had ghosts in their rental property and they said that every night um, their clocks were being turned back and um, they were adamant that there was a ghost in their property and they ended up moving out. Um, and then they, we found out a few years later that it was actually one of the kids that, that lived there, who, like their children, had actually been turning back the clocks and that the parents were <laughs> adamant that that was a ghost. <laughs> one of their own children. Yes. And then they couldn't fess up. And then, <laughs> parents moved out and everything. <laughs> to, to be honest, that's something I would have done as a kid. <laughs> oh, my God, that's diabolical. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I think that's hilarious. You got another one? Come on. You must have another one. <laughs> oh, I mean, some of the things we see, you know, we've had people, um, you know, still in bed at inspections and, you know, um, we've, had oh. to, we've had to walk into a room with, you know, a couple of people, even though we're yelling out, hello, we're here, they're still asleep in that room. It's just, you know, really awkward. But, um, you know, we do everything we possibly can these days to, you know, remind them, we text them, we email them the day before we're coming so that there's no way that they could should be in bed or, or the shower when, you know, we have people arrive for inspection. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I think I don't envy property managers. I think that they, they have to do with yes. a lot more more challenging things than certainly sales agents do. And that's why I think it's so important to get a good one. Like the reality is um, I think it's a tough job and I think COVID was probably one of the toughest jobs out there, especially in the property space. You had, um, you know, issues with, you know, maybe rents not being able to be afforded, um, you know, late payments, um, investors struggle, you know, there's a lot of uh, middle management of stakeholders mm. in the property management space. And you need to know the legislation, you need to know what you, what the protect the vendor, uh, the, you know, the landlord and, um, but also protect the tenant a little bit if they're getting, you know, mistreated by the landlord, which happens where it's not doing the fire alarms or whatever it is. So, you know, a lot of it's, um, you know, quite, thank- and you've got to be doing it, you know, if, if someone's not paying going into arrears, it's it's a tough job to sort of claw that money back, right? You've got to be really on them, et cetera. So you really need a property manager that's got your back um, and, you know, not only picking a good property, but then also picking a good property manager. So if you get those two things, a lot of your stress basically goes. Is that what you sort of believe? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've been doing this nearly 20 years now and I think over that time I've seen a lot. Um, and I guess one of the things, you know, we've seen uh, rental properties go on the market where they're clearly not legal height downstairs, but their property manager's gone and advertised it as a four-bedroom when it really should be a two-bedroom. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously that affects the rent that the owner's receiving. And so for the landlord, they probably think that's great. I'm getting, you know, $300 more a week. But they're really putting, you know, that landlord at risk by doing that. So then, you know, and I guess that that could escalate, that's misleading advertising. So it's really important to make sure that you do understand that legislation. You're choosing a property manager who is familiar with it, who knows, and is going to be communicating with you and, and leading, holding your hand and leading you through that. Um, mm. Because, yes, you can go ahead and you can, you, you know, you can get away with these things until, you know, until someone complains. And it's just really you know, it's, you don't want to be taking those additional risks when you don't have to. You shouldn't be doing that. What's your um, thoughts on pools, actually? Well, in Brisbane, like, you know, do renters love them? Um, you know, who sort of pays for the maintenance on them? But, um, you know, how, how important is it? And should you sort of rule out a property if it 
has got a pool just because of the sort of maintenance and the the cost? Uh, or do you think that you're always got to get a premium for it because they're just so in demand with the Brisbane climate? I don't know. What's your thoughts? I mean, I like I personally like I have a pool at home. I like I think you know if if it's if it fits into that market, then that's a really good asset. So I think once you start to get you know four or five bedroom houses with you know, three bathrooms, yeah, definitely a pool is an asset and a lot of people are prepared to pay more for the pool. Yeah. Um, definitely, it's always the tenants pay for the pool chemicals, the owners pay for the servicing, so making yeah. sure there's an additional set of eyes, checking the equipment and, you know, making sure it's running as it should be. Um, but, it, I, you know, I've also additionally seen them in, you know, maybe $600 student houses where that is not, a, you know, an asset to the investment. It's not being looked after. <laughs> And I've actually had an owner remove the pool and have it, um, you know, removed and have it returfed that yard because it was a money pit. There were trees all around it, just dropping leaf litter, and obviously the tenants yeah. just weren't maintaining it. And that was a real headache for that landlord. So it, I guess it comes down to the type of tenant. Like you talk about demographics earlier. I mean, the reality is that tenants have obligations too, right? To oh, look after, they're meant to do gardens. I mean, I've seen plenty of gardens where tenants haven't done them. Yes. Uh, but, yeah. But um, you know they are meant to keep the prop, keep the external, uh, the exterior of the property um, in good order as well. But yes. how do you, you know, because that's I think you've got to be pragmatic about this, don't you? You can't buy a house with a beautiful garden and then rent it out and really expect it to main, no. remain beautiful. Yeah. The odd tenant will because they really care, but most are thinking, well, bugger that! I just want a nice house to live in. Yes. I, I can't be bothered with all that. How do you sort of walk that path yeah. with tenants? I think it really depends on, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. So no tenant is going to spend as much time as you yourself would maintaining the gardens unless they particularly love gardening, which is a very, very small percentage. So <laughs> I think if you've got an executive property and your gardens are immaculate, I mean, we've had owners where their, their hedges were cut into the shapes of trees. No, oh, sorry, the <laughs> shapes of houses. No tenant is yep. going to do that on their weekend. So I think that's really important to make sure you <laughs> You have the garden maintenance included in the rent and you obviously add that cost on. I think, um, you know, we do obviously routine inspections, so every three months, so that's the maximum you're allowed to go through in, in Queensland under the legislation. And I think that's really important to make sure you are going through. If you know that a particular property, like if you're doing drive-bys and you know particular tenants are not maintaining that garden, it's making sure that they're issued with warnings, they've given a breach notice and because it is important that, you know, the properties are maintained to a certain standard and it may be that they're not offered a renewal if they continually, you know, ignore their obligations under that legislation. I mean, if you love your gardens and the gardens are a big asset to the house, which they can easily be mm. if they are um, impressive, maybe not the garden art, which I actually quite like, yeah. the, um, you know, the, when the hedge is shaped <laughs> as an elephant or... The coat um, of arms. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, a good friend, they've um, just sold actually, West Footscray in Melbourne, and, um, and I, whenever I used to see him, I used to say, mate, can we just go up the street and look at this house? Because um, you used to have all the animals, giraffe and elephants. Um, <laughs> oh. I used to love looking at it. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Um, but, yeah, if you've got a really good garden and um, you, surely you just pay for it yourself, right? You just pay for the maintenance because, Definitely. you know, you don't want to, you know, take any risk with that because you've got to protect your asset and not assume that someone else is going to protect it. Oh, for sure. I had one house that I had and renovated and, and I got the garden done and I used to, to have that um, landscape, well, uh, maintained by gardeners every month. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, because I, I knew, A, what it cost me to put the garden in yep. and, B, that they are more valuable the more established they are because, mm. of course, you even if you look at landscape and you go, well, how much does a little uh, a sapling cost versus an established tree? Yes. It's a massive difference. Definitely. So it's yep. well worth um, continuing to invest because that is an investment. I, I, I see a very important part of the asset. Oh, it's so true because it doesn't happen overnight. I'm literally at the planting stage and um, <laughs> we're starting to do the coatings on plants and stuff like that. And um, you're right, Veronica. It's like, and, you know, if, if you uh, got an investment property, there's no reason why you shouldn't start that garden straight away, mm-hmm. right, and pay for those trees and pay for the maintenance because, you know, when you do want to sell that in 10, 20 years' time, um, it's too late, right, because oh, yeah. you need to, to build it. Well, yeah. I've... I- I've got a, a little bit of a Dumbo, so um, someone that I know had, uh, you know, a fairly unattractive wall that that was quite prominent from their living room and on the neighbouring property and, and I said, you know, you need to grow some ivy or something over that. So they actually had to um, befriend the people that lived underneath because it's an apartment and so that, because they had a garden so they could actually go down there and climb up over their wall to be able to plant plants to grow up over this wall but it was sort of discussed for so long and nothing done about it and I was like oh I'm going to sell in a few months so I better go and do it and of course it just didn't have enough time so you had these little tiny puny little (laughs) green plants that you go that one day will cover the entire wall (laughs) it's going to take a long time and it's a massive act of faith to um you know, to be able to look at it and say, well, you know, that's what the future is going to look like. But it would have added an enormous value if it was looking at green rather than this, this sort of rust-coloured wall. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Get started today if you, if you can. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for the uh, chat, Lauren. There was lots of great tips there for uh, people in the Brisbane market of what to buy uh, but also what to not, not to buy. do <laughs> um, and how to potentially put lipstick on a pig, I guess, if you have to, uh, rent it out. So I um, really appreciate the chat. No, thank you. Thanks very much, Chris and Veronica. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, let's uh, talk about where property investing should fit in your overall goals and planning. Mm. Uh, Lauren talked about one of her clients who has owned an apartment for six years and hasn't really done much in terms of price growth, if at all, and now they're planning on retiring in three years. And so clearly that's done, and they use the word, it's my investment. Well, I would argue that's not an investment. Um, And this is a danger. I, I often come across people, and you probably do too, Chris, where they've bought property investments thinking that that's what you should do in order to secure your future, but unless they buy it early enough in life yep. and unless they buy the right asset, they end up going backwards or doing nothing and thinking about where you are in your life. You do need a long runway uh, with property. You know, you, yes, you can buy with a 10-year horizon. It's better if you're buying with a 20 or 30-year horizon. But if you're buying with a 10-year horizon, focusing on capital growth is absolutely 100% because you need to have options at the end of that 10 years and focusing on yield alone particularly if you're borrowing a lot of money, it's just not going to get you where you want to be. Yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, being a financial advisor for too long, understanding uh, alternative options to property. Uh, and so people who are getting to the retirement phase uh, or they're already just there, you know, a lot of people love the bricks and mortar, I can see it, all that sort of uh, jingo. But I think the reality is a lot of those shouldn't be going anywhere near property. It's a lumpy asset. You can't really sell a brick at a time. Um, you know, you've got potential lower yield. You've got to pay tax on it. 
um, and potentially there's better growth in alternative assets, commercial property, you know, shares, uh, you know, diversified portfolio, you can sell down, having money in super, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of retirees, property is not great. You know, and also that sort of 50 to sort of 55, um, you know, where it's maybe a five to 10-year runway to retirement, it's a really hard thing also for them to potentially think that property is the best option. Um, you know, potentially if they uh, could go into retirement with a lot of debt, um, a property that may not have risen that much and making very little money on here, there might still be negative gearing costs, um, et cetera. So you've got to be really careful if you're in your 50s. You're looking at property as your retirement strategy. Um, sometimes there's better options, you know, diversifying to a share portfolio, maximizing super, there's other things. Um, but when you are in your 40s and your 30s and even obviously your 20s, but um, you've got a much bigger runway, right? You're talking 20 years. And so, um, you know, their property over that time frame, you can leverage a lot further. I think that's a much better bet. As long as you focus on a quality asset. Absolutely. <laughs> that's uh, the final yeah. word on that one. <laughs> yeah, and that is so true. I mean, we, we just see it all the time. Like, you know, people have, mate, they've got the time right. You know, yes, it's, you know, great time. We've got lots of equity in the house. We've got servicing. We can afford an investment property. And then they just think about the number of properties. I've got one client at the moment. I'm really battling to get them to focus on the quality of asset and not just getting a property. And um, it's a bit of a, a pain because the reality is it's so close, but they're just going for the easy option. And uh, even though they're you know, super on the ball and lots of other things, it's just getting that quality assets just not sinking in. And unfortunately, I don't think it sinks in with enough investors. So I guess that's really what this boot camp is about. You know, if you are looking at buying one of these sort of apartments that are, you know, heavily marketed to investors and you're thinking that this is, and it's easy, much easier to buy these properties than it is to buy, you know, a scarce asset. Talk to the property managers that are renting them out, not the ones that are affiliated with the spruker or the developer or the agent that's selling to you, but other ones in that area. Because I think that that's one of the things that that uh, Lauren did sort of give some insight into, and that is that they have to do all these things, all these tricks to try to make that individual property more rentable. And if you get an insight into that, into how difficult that is and how you need to spend more money and then if other people catch on, you've got to do something else because everyone could do that, then that might actually encourage you to think twice about that as a inverted commas investment. Well, we're coming up to April Fool's Day and you know what that means. That means that we're launching our next full or forecaster report. It's the 2021 edition and we are going to be looking at all the forecasts and predictions that have been made over last year for 2020 and how many got it right. So if we're looking at degrees of who got it wrong, let's see who got it more wrong or less wrong. And there's a lot of surprises in there and a couple of gold stars too. Please join us. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.